Today's sermon text is Amos 9, verses 1 through 6 and 11 through 15. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves at the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil, not for good. The Lord God of hosts, who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. In that day, I will rise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. When you hear that kind of language coming from the mouth of God, does that cause you to pause as if we don't know this kind of God? We've been going through this series in the book of uh, the Minor Prophets, 12 of them. We do half this year, we'll do half next year. And these Minor Prophets really, um, you can think of them like the, the 12 Prophets and the 12 Apostles. They're both preachers. These Prophets are Old Testament preachers. And what they're doing is they're communicating a message about God. And they're holding God as holy and mighty and powerful. And yet they're also holding him as merciful and one who invites us to repent. The messages have to go together. They can't be separated. We don't want this mighty, sovereign, powerful God without the mercy that is clearly part of his character. Amos, I think, holds this intention, although, although today I think you'll probably feel a bit more of the severity of God in this passage. And let me give you a little background on Amos, and then I'll try to explain the contour of the book, and then we'll We'll look into it from there. This is, again, we're doing a sermon on a whole book. So uh, it's, it's a high view of the, of the scriptures we have. And, and if you just want to sit and listen and you want the notes to get details later, I'd be happy to send them to you. But, but I want you to get a, a concept of the greatness of God from this book. So, so we, we're introduced to Amos in the first chapter in the first verse. There's very little biographical information on this prophet. We learn in one one it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So right away we learn that he is a shepherd. 
He's not like Isaiah in the royal courts. He's not like Ezekiel, a priest of God. He's a shepherd. He's untrained. He's not a religious scholar. In fact, he says in chapter 7, another small piece of biographical information. He says, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore tree figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So here, Amos is called out of this agrarian life, and he's brought into ministry. In fact, he's brought into more than ministry, he's brought into missionary work. Because remember now, 150 years before this, uh, the kingdom uh, of Israel broke in two. So you have the southern kingdom, marked by Judah and Benjamin, and the ten northern tribes made up the northern kingdom. There were two different kingdoms now for 150 years. And so Tekoa is a city south of Bethlehem, or near Bethlehem, and so it's the, um, an inhabitant of this country moving to another one to declare a message of God. Now, the, and, and just, just pause there for a moment. Isn't it kind of encouraging to you uh, that God is calling a non-trained, non-theologically, perhaps trained individual to do his work? I mean, how much of God's work has been done uh, by people with no clerical collar, no training, no seminary experience? God does an amazing amount of work among people, just the normal, ordinary people. He was a shepherd. He, dressed, he took care of trees. He was a gardener. And yet God used him to preach a powerful message. So just remember that when you're about to write yourself out of God's script. We've got to get somebody else to do this who's had more training. Just remember this. Amos was an untrained man, but open to be used of God. So the times in which he preached, though, were significant. So remember, in Joel, we didn't know when he actually ministered because there's no marker of a king. But here he's during the reign of Uzziah and Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the king to the north. That's where he'll be doing his ministry. Uzziah was a king in the south. It's the 8th century B.C. Maybe he ministered maybe around the early 760s B.C. But the times were good. It was a prosperous time. There was no external threat immediately around Israel. And, uh, and plus, Jeroboam was a very successful military strategist. So he expanded the land. There was a trade route through Israel. So they made much money. It was a really time of national wealth and growing prosperity. So it's into that context that Amos has this message to bring. And he brings this message of what? Judgment. Judgment over the sin of the people. Judgment's going to fall economically, and judgment's going to fall physically and militarily and spiritually. Now, when you're happy and hopeful and you get a message of doom and gloom, it's not a good day for Amos. He was not famous Amos. He was more of an infamous Amos. He came in like the prophetic Eeyore of the Old Testament, coming in saying that, no, God is going to bring judgment upon the sin of the people. In fact, if you were to go to chapter 7, you would see another prophet to the king, Amaziah, said to the king, hey, Amos is a conspirator. He's bringing in all this doom and gloom. And here's what he says in chapter 7. He says, the land is not able to bear his words. So they were not liking what Amos was saying. And I, I will be honest with you. In all the prophets, Amos has a severe message. There is hope, 
and it comes at the end. You've got to wait until the end. There is hope, but it's a severe message. I, I propose to you that you read it today. It, if you sat down and read the book of Amos, it would take you 25 minutes, less than a half an hour. And, and it's really a compilation of poems and sermons and visions. <clears throat> and they were compiled after his life. And hence we have the book of Amos. Now, that's an important feature that I just told you. It was compiled afterwards. It wasn't simply a historical message to a certain people at a certain place and time. It's for us today. We need to hear this message and, and that's why it's compiled, and we can read it now. Now, the book has a clear structure, a macro structure, but it's clear. So in the first two chapters, we're going to hear about God bringing judgment. God is very powerful, he's sovereign, and he brings judgment upon the nations. And then in chapters 3 through 6, we find out the details of this judgment. What kind of judgment? Why is he bringing judgment to the nations? And, and you're going to see this in a series of three sermons. They all begin with, hear this word. Chapter 3, 1, 4, 1, 5, 1. Three sermons in a row with a couple of woes at the end, a couple of condemnations. And then in 7 and 9, it's five visions about the day of the Lord. And then there's hope for us. And the hope that we get is going to be through the judgment that falls. That's very important. So look with me in the first two chapters. Uh, we, we hear about this God. Amos, remember, we just learned about him from verse 1. That's all we get. And then we move right to God. God is the main actor in this story. God is the main player. And look with me at chapter 1, verse 2. He says this. He says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So God's judgment doesn't begin with a whisper. It's not a faint voice. He roars from Zion. Now, if you've ever seen these, when I was a kid, you'd see the old movies. Even Tarzan, right, he's in the jungle, and, and you hear all the noise, night's falling, and it gets a little bit scary, and then all of a sudden you hear the roar of a lion in the jungle nearby, and all the sounds stop. Everybody is now scared. Uh, of course, the, the person in the jungle is now frightened. There is great dread on their face. There is acute attention given. There is a lion nearby. I am That's the picture God's giving to us of Amos. He's roaring with judgment. And in the first two chapters, through this poetry, he roars out judgment to eight different nations. And he says the same thing at the heading of each word. He says, for three transgressions of Gaza, and four, I will not revoke my punishment because... And then he lists the sin. And then he says, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. And for three transgressions of Syria, and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. So he's going down this list of nations, saying that God is going to bring judgment, he will not revoke judgment on all these nations. And then he gets to the seventh nation. The seventh nation is Judah. And Judah is, of course, the southern kingdom that broke away. That I will not revoke my punishment. And at this point, Amos' stock value is high. He's nailing all the nations around, around northern Israel. So he's, they're, they're, give me some Amos. They, they're liking the preaching of Amos. But they don't feel the noose tightening around their neck. Because each one of the seven nations that he mentions forms a circle around northern Israel as if they were in the crosshairs of God's judgment, and they were. The eighth nation is Israel. Here's what he says. 
for three transgressions of Israel and for four. I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and they turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. God will spend four times the amount of prophetic literature against Israel than all the other nations. God is a God who brings judgment. He is sovereign. He is the ruler. He's the creator of all things. He has right to bring judgment. These nations before him, they were guilty of war crimes. Please don't think God's being heavy-handed. They would rip pregnant women open, pull their babies out. They would send people into exile. They were guilty of war crimes, and God said, that is enough, and I'm bringing judgment. But I don't want you thinking God is a cold, distant, calculating judge. God continues, Amos refers to God as a God who has delivered them out of Egypt, who has chosen them for himself, who, have, who has saved them for himself. Listen to what he says. You know, Amos will use the personal name of God more frequently throughout this book, Yahweh, showing that there's a covenant relationship. God had a covenant with the people of Israel. He loved them. Listen to what he says in chapter 2. Was it not I that brought you from the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the desert? Was it not I that raised up your sons to be prophets and young men to be Nazarenes? He says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, You only have I known over all the families of the earth. You hear God as a father saying, I've known you, I've loved you, and you've broken covenant with me, you've broken faith with me. And so God says, it's it. It's over, the party's over. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Be prepared to meet your God. It's a sobering line from God. If you're here today, and this seems like, oh man, I came into a church with one of the fire and brimstone and all that. God, a God of judgment. You know, th this is a difficult issue for a lot of people. There's no doubt about it. We do not like to think of a God of love as a God of judgment. In fact, Robert Bella uh, wrote Habits of the Heart. He said this, that 80% of Americans agreed with this statement. He says, an individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. In other words, hey, it's a religion, it's voluntary. You can't tell me that I'm accountable to God. You can't tell me that this God of love that I believe in would actually bring judgment. Well, no, that's exactly what I'm telling you. In fact, I would say he wouldn't be very loving if he didn't bring judgment. Doesn't love, doesn't the love of a parent demand that he exercise to make sure that justice takes place in the life of his family? Doesn't love demand that? I mean, what, what, kind of, what kind of loving God would allow injustice to reign without ever being checked? Would that be justice? Would that be love? No, that wouldn't be love. It'd be an indifferent God. It'd be a God that doesn't give a rip about it. You need a God to bring judgment. And you know what Amos argues is he is a God of judgment. And he's a God of judgment because he's your creator. This is the reason. Three times through this book, he will reference the power of God in creation. Let me give you an example. He says, For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, 
who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He does that two more times in the book. In other words, Amos is saying, he has made you. One author said, you know, God fashions mountains like you fashion Plato. God is amazingly great and powerful. First, very first of the Bible. In the beginning, God. That's it. Created the heavens and the earth. Everything you are, everything you see, it was all made by him. It's all accountable to him. He's sustaining it all. It's all going to appear before him. You will. You may feel as an independent, but you are dependent upon God for the very breath you have. That's Amos' argument, that God is a God of judgment, and we need him to be a judge. When you think about the evil in this world, the unchecked evil, don't we need a God to make wrong things right? Now, if you're a Christian here, I, I hope you notice in the first two chapters how he deals with Israel. Uh, because it shows us that there's an imminent relationship between people of privilege and people with responsibility. You know, being chosen by God and knowing God and understanding the things we do about Christ, that does not exempt us from being faithful and obedient. Right? Didn't Jesus say this, you know, about the man with the parable, the parable of the talents, the man with the talents? He says, to whom much is given, much is required. There's an expectation. Do you know the graces to which God has given you? Have you stewarded them well, would you say? And if you're thinking, yeah, I want to hear those, those words at the end of my life, well done, my good and faithful servant, what in your life would cause you to feel that you'll hear those words? I'm not implying that you shouldn't or that you're not. I'm just asking you, what are those things in your life that would cause you to feel comfortable with that? In fact, I would even ask you, Perhaps today you could ask your spouse or a close friend, what do you see in me of God's grace <clears throat> that, would, that would help me see I have been faithful with these things, that I have stewarded the grace of God well? This is not a question you're asking going before him the day you die. This is a question we ask now. This is a question we want to we get on the table now. Because in these first two chapters, you're going to love God and you're going to be in fear of him because of his judgment. But Amos doesn't just stop there. He, he moves on. He moves on to, this is the God of judgment in the first two chapters. Then in chapters 3 through 6, we hear about the details of judgment. Why are we being judged? Why are these people being judged? For what reasons? And he gives them to us. And as I said at the beginning, he gives them through three sermons, chapter 3, 4, and 5. Hear this word, and then he gives us a sermon. And I, I'd, I'd encourage you to read back through those sermons. Because in these sermons, he's detailing out, really, the indictment that God is making against the people. And if I can, I would sum them up under three areas. First would be religious hypocrisy. He finds them guilty of religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. In other words, these people were very religious in terms of offering sacrifices. They would celebrate the festivals. They would sing songs of praise. They would assemble together. They'd get together at church and at the temple and they'd worship together. But their hearts were far from God. How do we know that? He says that they didn't care for the poor. They did not care for the afflicted. There was a dichotomy between their spiritual life and their ethical life. Listen to the hard-hitting words that God gives. 
He says, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. We just sang songs. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Do you see the relationship there that we are to have in our lives? The worship is to be married up with righteousness and justice to those with whom we live. The spiritual life and the ethical life are to be together. They were guilty of that. Not just religious hypocrisy, but idolatry as well. Remember, these, these people of northern Israel, they were syncretists. That means they blended worship, right? They worshiped the God of Yahweh. They also worshiped the God of Baal. The God of, they had gods for weather. They had gods for sex. They had gods for war. And they blended them together. And as we learned in Hosea, idolatry always leads to adultery or immorality. They always go together. We even see it here in chapter 2, verse 6, when he says that a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. You see how idolatry, because none of the gods that the pagans would worship were moral. They were immoral themselves. And so worshiping those gods leads you to immorality as well, which we see here. But listen to the Listen to the irony dripping off of God's words when he criticizes their idolatry. He says, come to Bethel and sin. Come to Gilgal and multiply your sin. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. Should have been unleavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Weren't supposed to. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel. You just hear God castigating their idolatry. But not just hypocrisy and idolatry, he also charges them as guilty with complacency. Now, as I said, these were prosperous times. Money was flowing in. National wealth was increasing. But it was centering around those few that had the levers and the dials of power. And, and they didn't see this increase in wealth as a gift of God to be stewarded to help those around them but simply as a means of ingratiating themselves to greater and greater and greater luxury. Now listen to what he says in chapter 4 when he goes after these people who have taken their luxury to new limits. He says, Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring me that I may drink. Now, you'd think maybe that's not really a pretty picture. Maybe he could have used a little nuance there. But what he was going after is he wasn't calling anybody. He wasn't kind of name-calling. He was showing that their luxury had gotten to such a limit that they were ignorant of the needs of anybody around them. He goes after the leaders in the same way in chapter 6. He says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Do you see both are saying the same thing? He is not condemning wealth per se. 
He's condemning wealth when it captures your heart so that you have little concern for the ruins of Joseph. The ruins of Joseph, those were the people in northern Israel that were not being cared for. Or, or, or when he criticizes these cows of Bashan, you know, they're, they're crushing the needy. They're oppressing the poor. It's when your money and your comfort and your love for things blinds you to ever need to care or be concerned about anybody else outside of your immediate area of influence. So here, when you see this indictment through this preaching, he's preaching sermons. You see this indictment, and here's what he does. He says, your hypocrisy, your idolatry, and your complacency is seen in one word, injustice, ambivalence. You don't care. You're not exercising efforts toward those who are suffering. You, Israel, who were oppressed and who were enslaved, and with whom I delivered, you're not delivering anybody. Jesus, didn't he say freely you receive, freely give? They weren't giving. So that's what Amos was seeking to do, to try to bring about a measure of repentance through preaching. That is what preaching does. You know, the role of the preacher is to try to shape your mind to be plumbed up with God's word. You know, some people come in and they'll hear that the topic we're talking on is something that they've already made a decision on. And they said, I've heard more than half a dozen times, you're not going to change my mind on that. I'm, I'm, I'm clear on that. I'm like, well, you just ruined about 95% of the purpose of what I'm about to do. Preaching is meant to challenge, to transform, to change the way you think so that you think like God thinks as opposed to you think like you want to think or the world thinks. And, and these sermons will do that. So when you go back and read through them, here are some of the changes that should come to your mind. It should change the way you view God. It should change the way you look at God. And many times we, we look at God as just a kind of a cold calculating, I'm writing down everything wrong, I'm going to save up the list, so when I see you, boom, I'm going to nail you. And, and we think of God that way. And yet you see God here, he cares for the poor. He cares for us. But he also cares for the poor. He cares for the oppressed. He cares for the disenfranchised. He cares for those who are marginalized. He cares for, yes, the unborn and the elderly, but the refugee as well, and the minority as well. He cares for people. God is a caring God. You will see judgment here, but the judgment falls because we're not caring for those. You know, the widow and the orphan to God are very important. Are they important to us? It should change our view of God. It also should change our view of religion. I hope you see the intimate connection between your love for God and your love for neighbor. I hope you see the intimate connection between the worship of God and the service to those who are oppressed. I hope you don't come to church or even come to worship in some sort of ambivalent way, like, well, I'm going to church. And I hope you don't see church or attendance at church or even tithing to church or serving in a church I hope you see your spiritual life as having a direct relationship to your ethical life. So if during the week we're dabbling in porn or immorality or we're harboring bitterness or we're, we're cheating at school or we're lying in the office or ripping people apart in the office to move up the ladder or to achieve some project that we're on, if we're doing those things and then we come to church and we sing songs of praise and we give our offerings, God sees through that, it would be spiritually hazardous 
for you to do that. One author said it this way. He said, Amos is a devastating book for people who give token attention to God through assemblies and songs, but whose hearts are much more genuinely engaged by sports, business, family, or hobbies. If your outward acts of worship are amassed to give you some respectability, while your heart is really attached to the world and to your own comfort, then God hates your worship. He despises your psalm assemblies and offerings and songs. That's a hard word. It's a good word. I don't like to preach these messages, but they're an important part of the ingredient mix of what you need to live. It should change our view of wealth. If you see wealth as a means by which we secure financial freedom and financial security, and you don't see it as a gift of God, then you've missed the scriptures. Scriptures see the use of our wealth as a matter of justice. If we don't have concern for the poor, then what does that reflect about us recognizing that we once were poor of spirit? I'd hate for us to see these present-day blessings that we selfishly consume without regard for others becoming part of the future trials we will face. It should also change, and let me just ask you this, in what ways is your material wealth moving towards those who are oppressed or poor or broken? How is that happening in your life? It will also change our view of justice, I think we all can, we, we all know that even in this country, there is injustices to those uh, who are uh, of a minority status. Uh, I think we all know it. I mean, I, I think if you're part of the majority class and you've had unique opportunities given to you, I think we all know that we probably have it a little bit better than others. I don't want us to feel ashamed of our color or station in life at all. I just want us to recognize that, that the church itself, the people of God, are to reflect God by making sure that there is justice going on with those personally known to us, at a minimum, that we are dealing equitably with people, that we are not bringing about any form of oppression, that we're not bringing about any form of injustice, that we're working against that in our personal lives. But I also think that we need to have a concern for the systemic injustices that we have. The exploitation of women, racism, the exploitation of children, unfair wages, inequitable wages. We know that there is much work to be done, that we're to be about justice for the oppressed. I think also, if you read through these sermons, it's going to change your view on trials and the difficulties. You know, if you read just chapter 4 alone, this is what he says in chapter 4. He says, I gave you famine, yet you did not return to me. I withheld rain from you, yet you did not return to me. Let me just pray for them. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would grant mercy and grace um, to these servants who are seeking to save and help. May those who need them Uh, receive the help that they intend to give in full measure, Father, and I pray that you would cause them to see this as a small foretaste of the great saving work you've done for us in Christ.
So he says this in chapter 4. He says, I gave you famine, yet you did not return to me. I withheld rain from you, yet you did not return to me. I struck you with blight and mildew, yet you did not return to me. I sent pestilence among you, and yet you did not return to me. I overthrew your cities, and yet you did not return to me. What is this telling us? This is telling us that God will use disaster and trial to wake you up to transcendent realities that are before you. Now, I don't mean to stand up here and tell you that I know everything about why trials come into your life. There is human agency, there's moral responsibility that has to do with our trials. I'm simply saying this, that God is a God who is looking to draw repentance from his people. And if he has to bring in allow, bring a measure of difficulty so that your eyes are taken off. Even though the temporal suffering is genuine and real, it's waking you to an eternal reality that you need to deal with. And I think that's why he does that. And that's why what follows this sermon is a call for repentance. He says in chapter 5, he says, seek the Lord and live. He says, seek good and not evil. He's equating those two, that seeking God and seeking good is the same thing. And he says this in chapter 5, that you ought to, he says, seek God and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So he's changing our view on trials here. They're calling for repentance. And what repentance is, is not simply, I'm sorry. Repentance is seen in a transformed life where we are establishing justice in the gate. In other words, we're concerned about justice in society. That would be an evidence that repentance is genuine. Now, I got to be honest with you. When I was at this point of the sermon, I started asking half the staff, am I a Christian here? I mean, I, I want to know, am I really a Christian? This, this says, it is very scrutinizing. It, it, it all takes us up, and it's, it's putting us against the plumb line. Do we know this God? Has our view of God been changed? Has our view of wealth been changed? Has our view of religion been changed? Has our view of justice been changed? Can we see trials coming from the very hand of God for our good? Can we say that? Yes, we can. I don't know how this needs to look in your life. I don't have a paradigm or a pattern for you to follow or here's three things to do. I don't want to give you that. I'm just asking you to go to God and say, God, where would you have me serve? We do even have ministries in this church, Refugee Hope Partners, where we can move to the disenfranchised, the marginalized. But not just that ministry, just ask God. What would you have me do? Where in my own personal life am I allowing injustice to thrive and grow? Or what systemic injustices can I speak to or bring about change? Ask them. Because here we are in this book. We're, we're through the six chapters, right? The first two, we've learned about God being a God of judgment. He does judge sin, people. Please move that through your head. He brings judgment on sin. But then we see the details of the sin in religious hypocrisy, and we see it in idolatry and complacency. And folks, if you didn't feel some of that stinging, I'd be happy to share it with you again. Then we get to 7 and 9. Now, 7 and 9 gets a little 
odd because it's five visions of the day of the Lord. Five visions, visions of fire and, and visions of locusts and visions of a plumb line against a building that's not going to stand for very long and summer fruit, this overripe fruit that's no good anymore. And then there's the fifth vision he saw. I saw the Lord and he's standing at the gate of a city with a sword. And that's what we read. Allie read that chapter 9. This is a day of dread. It's a day of judgment. This is a day uh, that is to, yeah, fill us with sobriety. You know, earlier in chapter 5, these religious folks who hadn't connected that the religious life and ethical life were different, he says this to them about the day of the Lord. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. I mean, why would you have the day of the Lord? Now, there's many of us will often say, I just want the day of the Lord to come, and he'll clean up the culture, and he'll clean up all this stuff. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, and it's not light. It's as if a man fled from a lion, and a bear met him. And he went into a house and leaned against his, his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom and no brightness in it? He's warning us. He's saying that the day of the Lord is a significantly dreadful day. Now, this was meted out on Israel in 722 B.C., probably 20 years after he preached these, these messages. Assyria, a kingdom to the north that grew in power, came and destroyed this nation. It took them all back, just destroyed them fully. They had been counting on their military in chapter 2. Didn't help them. They had counted on their financial security in chapter 3. They had summer houses. They had winter houses. They were gone. The day of the Lord is to wake us up. But here's where the hope comes. At the very end, this is why you always have to stick to the end. At the end of chapter 9 and verse 11 to 15, he makes this promise that he's going to rebuild this house that has been destroyed. He gives us actually two promises. He gives us the promise he's going to rebuild the house of David and that he's going to renew. He's going to really form a new people for himself. He talks about that. I'm going to raise up the ruins. I'm going to rebuild the house of David. Remember, 150 years before, David's house was split in half. But God's promise, according to 2 Samuel 7, God told David that you will have a house forever. But the house was split in half. What's God doing? He's fulfilling what he said he would do, which is I'm going to build the house of David. He's going to send a son of David, a Messiah, to come, and he will build this house. But he's also going to form a people. He's going to form a new people. You see the language in 13 and 14 and 15. It's almost the language of Eden. Right, These mountains flowing with wine, gardens planted and flourishing. They're secure, never to be removed again. There's this great security. He's speaking about a full restoration that will come to the land. A people will be renewed, a new people of God. So when will this be fulfilled? Some people want to say, well, God uh, did regather the people from the foreign lands and brought them back. And if you want to read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see the regathering of the people. But that doesn't bring about the full rebuilding of David's house. You begin to see the flower bloom when Christ himself was born. Why? Because Jesus' lineage was he was the son of David. And where was he born? In the city of David. Why? Because he's rebuilding the house of David. And you see that in his ministry when the first thing he comes and he preaches, he says, 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then immediately he calls people into that new kingdom. He's building the house of David. And he's calling people into it. Who are these people coming into it? Is it ethnic Israel? Is it the line of Israel? No, it's not. It's broader than that. In fact, the only place in the New Testament referenced that references Joel is in Acts chapter 15, 17, 18, and 19. And if you remember the story, the Gentiles had had their own experience with the Holy Spirit, and the Gentiles were coming in. It was, it was anathema. Nobody would have thought about it. Gentiles with Jews worshiping God? No way. It cannot be. And yet James, when he tries to understand this Gentile inclusion, Gentiles pouring into this Israelite religion, he says, there it is in, there it is in Amos. Amos prophesied that the nations would come. Here the nations are coming. In other words, what James is saying is the people of God are no longer ethnic Israel. We don't need to build another temple. We don't need to go back to shadows. The new people of God are Jew and Gentile together through faith in Christ. And that's why James says no circumcision. Circumcision was the mark of Israel, ethnic Israel. No circumcision means no longer is God moving through the ethnicity of Israel. Now he's moving through the people of God filled with the spirit of God through faith in Christ. That's why we don't, we don't look for a temple to be built. We don't look for Israel to be restored as an ethnic entity. No longer will that be. The people of God are Jew and Gentile, faith in Christ alone. This is our hope that he brings. We are now in this season of the day of the Lord where people are coming into this new kingdom that Christ has established. This is the preaching that Amos is doing here. He shows God to be a God of judgment. He shows the details of the judgment to alert us to our sin. And then he shows us the promise of salvation through judgment, which is salvation through faith in Christ alone. Now, what are you going to do with this message? You know, when Amos preached, the effect was minimal. It's true. They got carted off. It almost seems like it was a waste. Will preaching be a waste for you? For those of you who have been here, at least with Carol and I, for 15, 20 years, has it changed your view of God? Do you hear this word and saying, I've got to adjust my life to the truth of what's God what God has revealed to me? Here's the warning. One more warning from Amos. In chapter 8, here's what he says. <clears throat> He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. That is a famine we do not want. Do we hear God's word? as if it's the bread of life meant to sustain us and prepare us for that day when we see him. That's what Amos is getting people ready for. That's what I believe the point of preaching is. So God will judge sin. We're thankful for that. <clears throat> God is careful and kind to tell us, here's how you are to look at your lives. This is why judgment falls, and yet there's hope. 
coming in Christ. Now, they were looking forward proleptically, we say proleptically, to Christ to come. We look backwards to the Christ who has come, who has established. And now we, most of us in here presumably are Gentiles, are now part of this kingdom, just as he said. 